Hi, my name is David Speed. And I'm Adam Brazier. And this is the Creative Rebels podcast. Featuring inspirational stories and practical advice from some of the most prolific and successful creators in the world. Adam and I have co-founded multiple creative businesses and turned our varied passions into our careers. There's never been a better time in history to make a career from being creative. So many people will tell you that you can't do it, but we're here to show you that you definitely can. Right, let's do a podcast. Welcome back, Rebels. Hello. Um, So something happened to me yesterday. What happened to you yesterday? Uh, I was painting, as I am one to do, and um, a lady attacked me. Attacked? Like how? How? Not physically, verbally, verbally and emotionally. Um, She was so nasty. She was so horrible. Um, She was like, what the hell? Like, well, okay. So firstly, she came up and um, said, oh, thank God you're here. And I was like, what? Weird. Okay. And she said, um, thank God you're here. You've, you've finally arrived um, and you're, you're making art on this wall. I'm, I'm so glad because this, this wall needs your art on it. And I, I'd literally just started. I'd just sketched up. And yeah. I thought she was being completely genuine. So I was like, oh, thanks. Uh, thanks so much. I mean, I've, I've literally just started. Like, come back in a couple of hours and it, it'll, like, there'll be something yeah, to, yeah, yeah. to look at. I was like, literally, I've literally just started. I just sketched up. Um, and she was like, you don't think I'm being serious, do you? And Ooh. I was like, I, and I was like <laughs> that's not where I thought I was, was going to go. I, I was like, were you being sarcastic? And she was like, of course I was. And I was like, my brain just melted. That, like that was it. My brain melted right there. I was like, who goes up to someone and like pretends to big them up like massively and then just goes, you absolute fucking idiot. I was taking the piss out of you. So straight away, I was just like, what is happening? I'm in a vortex. This is super weird. Yeah. And because that never happens as well, especially when you're so used to people coming up and being positive. Going, this is lovely. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or they're straight away negative. There's never, people don't have the, the confidence, I suppose, to come up to one and be hugely sarcastic with someone they've never met before. Yeah. It's, it, it is a bit weird. So I was like, so I was kind of on the back foot and I was like, I'm really not trying to offend anyone. I'm actually trying to do the opposite. I'm actually trying to sort of create artwork that will maybe bring a smile to someone's face as they walk by. Like maybe like I'm trying to brighten the place up. I'm not trying to, um, to destroy it. And she was like, well, no one wants you to do that. And I said to her, did you see the wall before I'd started painting it? And she said, no. And I said, well, it was covered with posters and, and, uh, like racist tags and all of this sort of stuff. Um, and I was like, look, if you come back and you hate it, then I'll paint over it, which I had no intention of doing that. But that's kind of like my defensive method of, I think that if you come back, you will probably like yeah. it because I know well, it's going to be all right. It's not going to yeah, be a bad painting. You've just seen me sketch up. You think I'm here trying to vandalize and it's just going to be a mess. In her mind, you're about to create a mess. But no, because literally like, you, I, I can, I, I've got a time-lapse video of it. The point, and, and yeah, it's funny because me and Yana went through it and I'm, I'm like, that's her because you can see exactly <laughs> the moment that she comes up. But she came up where like it was clear, I was painting a French bulldog and it was clearly a French bulldog and uh, I've got like all of the white shades in and like ev- everything's up. So it already looks like what it's supposed to look like. Okay, it wasn't, yeah. it didn't look as if it was going to be a mess. It actually looked like it was going to be something. She did come back later 
for another fight because one wasn't enough for her. Um, and so again, I said, look, literally a lot of people have been by and I, this, I had this lovely delivery driver next to me and he was like, oh, I think it's wicked. And she was just like, oh. <laughs> basically the, the way it was diffused was as soon as I said, I've got the building owner's permission to do this. Um, she went, well, fine, carry on then. And she walked off. Yeah. At least you know you're doing something right because you are polarizing opinions. If everyone just told you you were great all the time, then maybe you're not doing the right thing. Adam, I want everyone to tell me I'm great <laughs> all the time, please. Um, I mean, I'll, I'm, I'm going to post the the image. It will be on at David Speed UK um, on my Instagram and people can see whether they think it's uh, an abomination. In fact, leave me a comment on it and go, if it, if it hurts your eyes and you think it's disgusting, let me know because I'd like to know. But yeah, I guess, I mean, yeah, you can't please everyone, but it, it was a very strange... I mean, because I always say on here, like people are often people are worried about haters. Um, and I mean, you can be much more brave online. And I always say to people like the the haters that you're worrying about will probably never come. I mean, you only <laughs> really get haters on a sub- significant level when you become like a Joe Rogan level or whatever. You become that really high level where there's so many opinions that people have to go counter and, and try and bring you down and stuff like that. Yeah, but- well, I suppose as soon as you get to a certain level, you come out of your pool of people who might be interested as soon as you've saturated that then you're going to get people from all sorts of places like i remember talking to a youtuber once and he was telling me that when he posts a video if his video goes like slightly viral then suddenly it gets shown to loads of people who aren't his audience and that's when the hate starts to come in as soon as it goes out of your bubble yeah definitely so i mean yeah i mean i tried to i tried to deal with it as much like i could have said why don't you fuck off or got got aggressive with because she was really aggressive to me and I thought I'm gonna meet it with calmness because because basically I countered every single one of her points that she came up with and it, and it sort of threw her and she'd go on to the next thing yeah um I, I could never could have changed her mind it's one of those ones where it's like I'm not gonna make her fall in love with the painting but by saying I'm not trying to wreck your day i'm actually trying to brighten it up but if you don't like it that's fine because we all have our own opinions i think the thing that got me was after she'd gone for the remainder of the painting all i was thinking about was her and Mm. i really hated that and i kept in almost like in a meditation way where you try and get your your mind your your thoughts back on track i i was kind of trying to bring it back around i was like don't think about her don't let her affect your day and like now that that a couple of days have gone by, I'm fine and it's now funny. But at the time and while I was doing it, it was so horrible. And I and I and then and then you sort of think, well, I'm making an ugly mess in the street that no one wants to look at. Mm. I suppose it's a little things like that. It's, it's, as soon as one person is negative towards you, it really affects the way you'll approach going out in future. Because next time you go to paint, if you're in a mood of like, oh, do I want to or do I not? You might then think of her and be like. Oh, actually, I'm a can't bother with a hassle at the moment. And yeah. I feel like a lot of people probably go through that with all sorts of things where someone's come up to them, been really negative, and then that's really thrown them of like, well, do I actually want to continue with this anymore? Like, is it worth it? Like, is it worth me enjoying myself? Well, we know that that teachers have, have a huge effect on students just by one negative comment that can cha- change the course of, of people's lives. I suppose I'm lucky in that over a 20-year career of painting, I've I, I I've already experienced all of the the gambit and I know that the that the negative I mean 
in 20 years i've had two people come up and be negative to my face in front of me yeah and overwhelmingly the people that have come up have been positive so i i I do have that experience and that bank but i suppose if i was a younger artist and this had happened then then i'd be worrying about that next time that i go out yeah so i suppose what you have to do is take on the good feedback and ignore the negative feedback i I guess (laughs) if you if you if you know it's bullshit if you know it's bullshit then ignore the haters because some people are just dicks and that is a fact of life so um, you are you're never going to change people's minds if as long as you know that you're doing the right thing then then keep going. yeah something um so in the episode one of the bonus episodes of Lindsay adler she talks about only listening to people you respect because if you only mm, take good. the good things and the bad things from the people you respect then that's the way you can actually grow and not let things hurt you because it's easy for if loads of people are like you're great you're great you're great but if you don't respect them as in terms of how valuable their opinion is to you getting better then it's almost like just be like okay that's nice but don't kind of let an ego take over there because you've got a thousand people saying you're great and on the flip side yeah if you've got someone who is a troll and they're just saying you're rubbish but actually you don't respect their work then it doesn't really matter only take criticism from people who you look up to that is yeah that's super good advice yeah i love that so on the topic of feedback, um, we'd like some of your feedback. Uh, we haven't yes, mentioned we this would. on the podcast. <laughs> we haven't mentioned this on the podcast for a while. And because we haven't mentioned it for a while, we haven't actually got any iTunes reviews for a, for a while. So if this podcast has brought you any value, then please leave us a review on iTunes because it really helps the show. And even if you're listening on Spotify and you know someone who's got an iPhone and you can go over to their phone and leave us a review on there, then you can do it that way too. Yeah, just hijack hijack them. Um and uh, you can subscribe to us on Spotify as well. That helps. And uh, thank you. This week's episode, what an episode. This, this is another one of my favourites, um, which is is getting a bit too common now. I'm like, oh my God, that's another favourite episode. But um, but this was so good. Um, and I, I, like, this is on a level with a Will Store. And, yeah. and similarly to the, the Will Store, when I was going through looking for clips, it's like, it's not soundbitey. There's not like loads of clips that I could, I could, take from it when you listen to it as a whole episode it's it sets your brain on fire as you're listening to it because there's so much stuff in there it's it's amazing yeah this episode was so interesting i think because the way we kind of came in to sit and what we planned in advance was very different to how it went because we actually just sat down started to have a conversation around the table about all sorts of different things and then we started to talk about the book that she was writing and a conversation just really evolved and this episode doesn't really have an official start to it because we were just kind of mid flow. So I press record and you kind of catch us midway through here, but it is just such a fascinating conversation that, yeah, I think we really wanted it to carry on for another hour. Let us know what you think about this episode uh, with Rebecca Seal. As Adam mentioned, you join us mid conversation when we're talking about hunter gatherers. And just a little side note, we recorded this pre lockdown. Um, So Rebecca Seal is an author, journalist, editor, and TV presenter. As with many guests that we've had on the show, there was a point in Rebecca's life where to the outside world, it looked like she had everything. However, she started to realise that society's view of success didn't match her own and non-stop work was affecting not only her mental, but also her physical health. And in this episode, we talk about how important it was to make a change. Rebecca's currently working on a book about the highs and lows of working alone called Solo. She's worked alone for the past decade and after finding very little advice on the topic, decided to take matters into her own hands and write the book that she needed. 
In this episode, we talk about hunter-gatherers, money, and working alone. If we all think we have to work 48 hours a week in order to be successful, then we will drive ourselves crazy. I think you're right. I think there is a value in thinking about the arguments within it and trying to make sure that everything I put forward is as sound as I possibly can. But there are parts of it. So, for example, there's a section at the moment I'm working on which has to do with um, hunter-gatherers and the amount that they did or didn't work and the extent to which work has almost falsely been made into the central part of what it means to be human today. Mm. But if you look at the archaeological and genomic record and also look at existing hunter-gatherer communities, it looks as though they work or worked around 15 hours a week. They just did enough. And they did something else. Because I suppose, yeah, then it's like you're just surviving. Well, it was much survive. more than that, actually, because so what it looks like is that they weren't just surviving. They were they were doing enough to survive. They had no capacity to store an excess of whatever they were yeah. finding, catching. Yeah, you know. yeah. So, so that would so be a waste of time. That would be and, a, a, yeah. a waste of time and resources. So they just did enough and then they stopped. But it's not it's not as raw as just surviving. They lived or live. Um, so there are, you know, there's art, there's music, there's socialising, there's festivals that, you know, there's loads of other things that are happening, which aren't what we would consider to be work. Yeah. So it's not like they're, they're kind of eking an existence. They're having good lives. And the other really interesting aspect of it is that uh, one of the reasons why we don't take that kind of community that seriously is because the average age of death has always been thought to be very very low but in fact that's because of a misuse of data so <laughs> getting so niche here um there's like um, the mean average age of death among hunter-gatherers historically yeah. and now does look relatively low but that's because infant mortality is involved okay, if you survive yeah. through infancy and then you look at the median age of death in hunter-gatherer communities it's around 70 so it's 80 nearly around with us mm-hmm. here in a so-called developed world yeah with modern medicine with modern medicine yeah. and it's like just under 70 it's only 10 years different so but because we've always looked at the mean average which is looks like it's about 40 we've been able to discount anything about what we have historically considered primitive ways of life actually when i look at them through my lens of like what does it mean to be human how much do we need to work to be satisfied with our life and all the questions that the book is making me think about i look at that and think okay 15 hours a week they worked enough and then they stopped and they had a good potentially really long life of doing other things and it's only really since the beginning of the industrial revolution or possibly even like calvinist protestantism 400 odd years ago where this philosophy of work is the thing that you do and it's the thing that defines you that's kind of come into play and i think we're at this like whirlpool moment now where these old philosophies 400 year old sort of philosophies have had all their religious elements stripped out of them And we don't even know where they've come from anymore. And they're just kind of whirling around in our heads. Like to work is human. You know, everything about you, your whole identity is tied up in the work that you do. But if you look at probably about 96,000 years of human history, 
No, sorry, it's more than that. It's so we've we've been farming for ten thousand, maybe twelve thousand years. First towns and cities were established sort of soon after that. So we've previously we were hunter gatherers for I think it's about three hundred thousand years. So I think it's 96% of human history, based on my maybe shonky maths, about 96% of human history, we potentially were only working 15, 16, 17 hours a week. And these last few percent, this like tiny little window of time, we've been working like crazy. So based on that, it would seem to me that we kind of know that deep down when I think some people find it through meditation. Some people find it through like going for a walk in nature, just when we are relaxed or, or when we're painting, like from cave paintings to working on a canvas in a studio. I think there's something about us that, well, as you say that, it just all feels like, well, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, we're not built for this just ridiculous, crazy, panic-stricken like deadlines and everything that, that we've created for ourselves, which I suppose is a lot tied up in capitalism and and money and that being the system of we no longer share everything together and go out and bring food in and everyone can have some and, and whatever and then just relax for the rest of the time. But I suppose what the aim of this show is and the people that we're finding that are happy happiest within this modern system is they are writing or they are painting or they are doing something creative that is setting them on fire and they can then kind of have a toe in both worlds of like yes I've I have to sign up for this thing otherwise I'm not gonna have a house and I'm literally gonna have to be a hunter-gatherer which we don't in shortage yeah we don't really want (laughs) we don't really want that no um so there's no going back (laughs) yeah so so the best of both worlds is to then do something creative and get paid for it yeah, definitely. I just think that there's a very, very big blurry line between those two positions of overwork and kind of frenzies and, and deadlines and everything and creativity, because I work in the creative industries. I have a very creative job, but I still sit at a desk on a chair, which was, you know, so-called ergonomically designed, but it's not what humans are meant to yeah, do, yeah. sit around like we are right now. You know, it's not not what we've I mean meant to do I don't really believe that there's a kind of you know higher calling for what we what our purpose is but we're not this isn't what we're built for that's why we're all at the osteopaths half the time and you know all of that stuff so I suppose this is human created it's not like it's we're just trying to do it for survival it's we've put this on ourselves and we've grown ourselves into a system like no one made us do it but we are such weird animals we are yeah when you think dogs wouldn't exist if it wasn't for us it's just we're we're crazy yeah we're absolutely so weird yeah we're so weird we're so weird and i think part of unpicking where your place in that system in the current system is is about understanding how the system came to be so that's why i think it's really useful to to look you know, hunter-gatherers to a certain degree, but mostly, uh, say, the last 400 years and the development of the Protestant work ethic, the way that, for example, the Calvinist Puritan um, Protestants who went over to America truly believed, or Calvin believed, he was, so he's a theologian in the 16th, 16th century, he, John Calvin, he truly believed that um, your uh, godliness, your ability to ascend to heaven on, de- on your death was down, was predetermined, right? There was nothing you could do about it. However, there were ways in which you could tell whether you were one of God's chosen people or not. And one of those ways was prosperity. 
So everybody who followed his ethos, which filtered through like you would not believe, even be well beyond the confines of his kind of relatively narrow following. So people believed that they are that their godliness would shine through if they if they could prosper. And you know that that gives rise to so many things. You know, if if it is literally holy to prosper, then you can see how all sorts of ways in which the American economic system gradually layers on top of this philosophy and turns mm. into what we've got now, the prosperity gospel, you know, all of that, all of the the kind of the mixture of state and religion that you get in the US, the, the hyper-capitalist attitudes that people have. And then that all floods back into Europe and across the world. And, and you can see how that would... Threads. You can see how that would, would be picked up by every single person because when you think about the notion of ego that's a very human trait of because when we were talking to will store he was talking about um, that every single human has it in them that they want to get along and get ahead so they want to be friends with everyone but they also want to do better than everyone else mm. so then that competition within a tribe or or a group of humans of like well i need to show everyone that god loves me because everyone would then think, oh, well, I am the chosen one because mm. like, it's not Kevin. Like, look at him. Like, what an idiot. Like, it's, it's going to be me, isn't it? Mm, mm, mm. And yeah. then so from we... there just becomes the the hungry work, I suppose. So there's even an argument, and I'm not sure how I feel about this one. There's even an argument that pre, uh, pre-agriculture, pre the development of needing to create an excess, because the thing about agriculture was that on the one hand it allowed communities to survive and to grow in size but it also made them more vulnerable because you're tied to a particular bit of land you're tied to a particular set of weather conditions and the environment and you're also at risk of other people coming in and taking your stuff so you suddenly need to have an excess to deal with all that you have to you have to have grain stores and and winter because you're not going to move on to land where there's you know i don't know water buffalo at that time of year or something and the result of that then is um, an inegal. Well, this is the theory, and again, I'm I'm not sure I've like got quite enough on it to to nail it. But the result of that is inequality because some will have and some won't. So the theory runs that hunter gatherer societies would have been more egalitarian and less. We want to get on and we want to get ahead because there wouldn't have been any ahead. You know, yes. there would have been a kind of potential structural thing of like a leader you know a clan yeah. or whatever and so i'm not age. sure yeah an and age potentially yeah. so i'm not sure that it was like a completely flat you'd ever have had a flat system and i also think one of the difficulties is that um you know there would have been hundreds if not thousands of different groups who would have developed different systems yeah because that's what humans do so because it's but, like but, a lot smaller communities right at that point yeah i mean interestingly those groups were never more than about 150 in size so that's which, dunbar's number i yeah comes in yeah yeah so there's all sorts of questions there about how, you know, how we cope with groups that are so much larger than the kind of groups that we've ever, as humans, had to deal with before. But yeah, so that's the, so the theory runs that inequality essentially developed with alongside farming. Were there not also other hunter-gatherer tribes that would then come and attack and steal from other tribes? Probably. I don't. That's a bit I don't know about. Yeah, yeah that's... So I think more we've research all, to do. So we, yeah, so we maybe have always had 
there's always there's always been there's some always been bastard conflict. that's going to yeah. come and take yeah. something from yeah. you. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's definitely true. Yeah, there would have been inter intergroup conflicts. Yeah, for sure. So I'm not sure that I hold with this like inequality. I'm pretty sure that humans are good at establishing unequal setups, regardless of their kind of whether you're a hunter gatherer or a farmer mm. or a or a pastoralist or whatever. Because there's obviously lots of different grades of living. Yeah, so it's always going to be those people who don't want to put the work in. So, yeah. but then yeah. to attack another tribe is a lot of work because I saw a documentary on it and it's one of those, you know, those like American History Channel ones where, oh, where, they, super, like, like, where they like act it. Yeah. And, and you've like rather than just like telling you about something, there, there's like actors that are playing it all out. But, um, and there's, there's one tribe that comes and attacks another tribe. I suppose that's playing to your strengths, isn't it? It's like if that tribe isn't very good at gathering. Yeah. And they're, yeah. they're actually really strong. Yeah. They're like, well, what's the easiest way for us to go and get this? And if that's to just take from other people. Yeah. It's like you look at like the Vikings. Well, I'm thinking about the Vikings TV show, so I don't know how <laughs> accurate that is. But, but I mean, they, they did a lot of research for yeah. Vikings to make it. I mean, obviously, it was a history channel top, it was originally but, on. So yeah. obviously fact. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, it's that they were obviously strong and they could go and just pillage yeah. and just go and get whatever they needed. And I suppose then they could become prosperous through just taking the thing that that fascinates me about the vikings is the notion of valhalla that you will go there if you die a glorious death in battle so when they rolled up on our shores and all of the english people were scared to die and the vikings wanted to die it was because that was, there's nothing more glorious than a than a death on the battlefield and i think even in vikings there's there's one of the older the older guys, and he's really wanting to, he's like, I really want to bloody go to Valhalla and he's trying to meet his death. But you because he's not afraid of dying, he doesn't die because... Everyone else is terrified of him. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, that is really interesting. And that's a mindset thing, I suppose. That's that's like, yeah, be more Viking. Of, yeah. Just, yeah, not, if you don't fear it, then it has no power over you. Yeah, I mean, I was, so I follow... Um, Rachel Hollis, have you come across yeah. her? Yeah. I'm not like a 100% super fan, but I think she's got some really interesting techniques. And she did a little Instagram post, I think, yesterday about how she um, she's fearless, basically. She's like, I'm afraid of, you know, that there's a monster under my bed in the dark, but I'm not afraid of losing my business because if I did, I'd build it back up again. Yeah. I've yeah. done it before, I'll do it again. And yeah, I think her ethos on that stuff is really interesting. I do one of her things, actually. I do her um, 10... 10 dreams journaling thing right what's that so i don't i mean it's her thing but i think it probably came from a book about uh, which i uh, actually have just ordered so i've yet to read it but there's a really famous book called creative visualization um that was written maybe about 15 years ago mm-hmm. and the, the way that she that rachel hollis has translated it is you do a sort of brain dump of what your life you would like your life to look like in 10 years time so a big bit of paper and super ambitious so your house what you want your body to look like are you ambitious are you married if you're not married do you have kids if you don't have kids um you know are you healthy are you she has all these prompts for things to think about do you earn loads of money do you live in the city where you live or do you live in the countryside whatever you put you put it all down oh you're together (laughs) (laughs) are you living in a cave um and you take 10 statements out of that massive sheet of paper um that if they were all true in 10 years then you would have the life that you've written out on that bit of paper. And so I did that. And then you write them down in the present tense every day. Mm -hmm. And 
you choose one to act on and you only work on that one. You don't put so loads you, of effort into the other things. Is that like one at a time until that's complete or do you do one different one every day? No, or? no. So you always write down the same one at the bottom that you're going to do. So so I'll, I'll vaguely run through mine. So um, mine's got things like I am a runner. Because if I was a runner, loads of other things would be solved. Like, I wouldn't worry so much about my health. I wouldn't worry about what I ate so much. I would feel like I was going to be healthy and present for my kids in the long run. I would be carving out more time for myself in the week, which is something I struggle with because I have a two-year-old and a five-year-old. So I, it was kind of interesting to narrow things down to the specific actions which would make this life how I want it. And the language is important there as well. Of the lang- I, I, I am, am a runner. Yeah, yeah, the present tense is really, really important. So, and then it had a, so I had, I have other things like I have a great marriage. I am married. It is a great marriage, but I'd like it to be great in 10 years as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I'm kind to myself. I put my kids first. And the thing I chose to work on was the running one. So at the bottom, I write, I run three times a week. And I do run three times a week. It changed the way that I exercise completely. And because I'm accountable, I do it. Like, it's quite extraordinary. But the really weird thing about it was that number four on the list is I write books which were my idea and they sell very well, right? So until now, the books that I've written have generally been other people's ideas. People have, publishers have come to me and said, we really like you to do this project. And I've always been thrilled to do that because that's an immense opportunity. But I'd never written anything that was mine. And... I really wanted to. About three weeks after I start writing the list, I get a call from my agent saying, you know that book idea you've had about working on your own and how to cope with it, which has been in the world for like six years, mm. but I had not done the proposal. I'd had two kids in the interim. I, You know, I was like just doing enough journalism and writing cookbooks to kind of keep my body and soul together because I had tiny children and he was like I had lunch with this editor the other day this publisher and she's starting a new list of personal development books and she really likes the idea do you think you can get the proposal kicked into shape and sort it out and I go back to this proposal which I haven't looked at since 2014 I could see on my Mac that was the last date it was opened and I read it and I was like oh this is actually good that's weird okay that's this is good and then I didn't really have any work that week which at the time was a terrifying position to be in. I hadn't had very much work over sort of six months because of coming back from maternity leave and it was a quite frightening period. And I banged out 7,000 more words for that book proposal that week, sent it over to this publisher. Uh, She was like, I love it, come in for a meeting. We had a meeting and by the end of the following week, I had a book contract with a major publisher for a book that was my idea that I'm now writing. Now, that was number four on the list. I hadn't acted on it. I wasn't doing anything. Mm. I do not believe in the universe giving you things. Like, Mm. that is bullshit. But this was weird. And I don't really think it is... I don't think it really definitely isn't. The universe gives no shits about me. But I felt as though there was something... I created space for it in my head. I made it a thing that I wanted to do instead of it being a vague idea at the back of my mind that never really had anywhere to breathe or live. It suddenly was obvious to me that this is like my fourth most important thing in my life after like not dying from ill health due to never exercising, Um, (laughs) (laughs) you know, so and there it was so I think her I think this technique of hers is really powerful and I've used it to sort of manifest other things but say since. say that it is just a coincidence that mm. that you got the the call had you not written it down you might have talked yourself out of doing it yeah definitely definitely I, I mean there's you know an enormous possibility that it was coincidence but it allowed me to grant myself permission 
to do it rather than thinking I don't have time to write a book or I don't have enough money I mean I don't really have enough money you don't get a lot of money as a you know for your proposal like it just doesn't work that way hopefully it'll sell loads and I'll make money that way but I may not ever see a penny you know that could also happen so there was a big part of me that was thinking I should be just doing loads of lucrative journalism and trying to do I don't know more speaking engagements or whatever the things that pay quite well but what makes you happiest oh yeah writing this book I mean this is the most important thing I've ever done ever ever done like ever (laughs) I believe you yeah (laughs) and since writing it on there's number four on your list how many other people have you told that that's something that you're doing the list as in that specific thing about the book I hadn't told anybody I mean it was just there in the notebook so I hadn't spoken the words to Mm -hmm. any other humans even my husband didn't know and at what point did you decide that this is something I'm going to start sharing with other people what the book itself well when they asked me to when the publisher came along and said I think I might be interested in it that was the point at which I actually started to say yeah there is here's a book proposal so my agent had known about it for six or yeah six years or something and you know we'd been kicking it around as an idea but other things would always come along cookery books children tv jobs whatever and it's extremely hard when you've got loads of stuff going on to stop and do the other thing, the thing you really want to do, because all the other stuff is there being a deadline waving at you. Yeah, I, th- I think so. What you were saying with obviously the risks and the scariness of, of writing the book, because it takes you away from the things that you know are like the guaranteed paychecks. Yeah. Someone said to us recently, don't write a book and then sell the book like the book will sell you. And I think as this is your first title, that is your idea, mm. that is your work as it comes out there, people are going to find out about you and opportunities are going to open just because you have the book. Yeah, I hope so. I believe that, definitely. But it's just a completely different world than the one I normally inhabit. So it's a, you know, I'm I'm an established food writer, right? I've been working in, in food journalism since 2003. And, you know, I, I write for the Financial Times. I write for, the, you know, all the Sundays and Saturday newspapers and I write for big glossy magazines and I write for international publications so you know I know that world I know the editors I know the readership I know you know those are what my twitter followers or whatever they that's what they expect from me I don't know anyone in this world is that exciting yeah yeah it is it is it's really exciting but it's quite terrifying as well to have spent you know 15 or 16 years trying to get yourself into a position where you do know people and you go to events and there are people you can be like hi (laughs) you know this is like an entirely different thing so what would you say to someone who's in a career or doing something that they have been doing for 15 20 years and then thinks could I change I probably can't I mean I think you can It sort of depends on what you want to do. I'm quite keen in the book not to have people think, yeah, yeah, I'm going to give it all up and become a windsurfing instructor or something because I don't, you know, that's not what my story is. I'm moving sideways, I guess, Mm. out of something that I liked, but I'm not even out of it because I will continue to do my other work, but I'm using the skills that I already have from that and yeah making a sidestep I guess so and I, but I don't want to tell people not I mean I guess the point about the book the subtitle is how to work alone without losing your mind I'm not really there to say this is the job you should do this is what you should do this mm-hmm. is how to do your tax return or whatever I'm there to say this is how you can make your mind 
sort of stronger. This is how you can build the structures around yourself to survive the solitude potentially and how to be productive and creative but also not destroyed by the notion that you should be working 60 hours a week mm. you know how to have a life outside of work so I'm not really you know I'm not really the person to give advice about you know yeah you can quit your day job and do something yeah. like that you can of course you can and if that's really your burning desire you should but I'm more there to say okay you're here now you're on your own yeah. this, these are your options like there's no one size fits all but I will collect as many ways of bolstering yourself and I will put them in this book and you can use it as a toolkit and you can choose the bits that you want that sit best with you and your personality and that will help you to not fall down some of the holes that I've fallen down over the years and and to to have a long career that, you know, because we're all going to be working till we're like 80. So yeah. <laughs> um, average life expectancy. Yeah, 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 exactly. Two years of retirement. And then, <laughs> you know, yeah, that, so that's that's what I want to do. I want to and that's what I don't think exists anywhere else. I don't think anybody has has put together a set of things that says these are the these are your options these are some different ways of working these are some different places to work these are some different ways of thinking about work you know which is why the hunter-gatherer question it comes up for me you know it's like if we all think we have to work 48 hours a week in order to be successful then we will drive ourselves crazy and if you're on your own there's nobody to stop you yeah. right there's no HR department to be like mm. hey you've only taken three days of holiday this year there's not there's nobody and so I want to yeah I want to build something that allows people to be their own HR department their own CEO their own marketing company you know all of it everything yeah. that you need as a solo entrepreneur or business owner or whatever you are I want it to all be in this book so that you can be like right I've hit a wall about x what does the book say yeah. about how to unpick that problem so obviously there are a lot of problems with solo work but what are some of the best things about working solo yeah so there's a chapter at the beginning of the book at the moment that is like I don't want it all to sound bad because mm. <laughs> because it's great it's brilliant it's the best thing I would never go back to working in a big organization so the good things are yeah if you if you can exploit it then flexibility working hours flexibility flexibility in terms of the work the work itself that you're doing you've got the potential to be much more creative you've got the potential to do work that you would never be allowed to do if you lived if you <laughs> lived <laughs> Freudian slip. if you work in a large organization um you know the capacity for freedom for travel but all of that stuff depends on you not being absolutely terrified by the position that you're in so you know there are so many people whose mental health suffers from working on their own that you can only make use of all these myriad positive possibilities mm. if you're not like gripping your desk terrified that you're not going to get the work done that there's no work coming in that you're not going to get paid for the work whatever it is that's frightening you're only going to be able to be like fuck it I'm going to go on holiday for four weeks if you have managed to transcend all the kind of bullshit you mentioned mental health there how dangerous is it working on our own and how can we look after our mental health um so weirdly there's actually not that much research into mental health and solo working or indeed into solo working at all because it's quite a new way of working it's not that well studied so I'm actually this afternoon going to go and interview somebody at King's College who is a professor who studies well-being and self-employment so I hope I'll be able to have an answer to that by the end yeah. of today but I mean what we know is that overwork is really bad for mental health we know that it's got 
negative health associations in almost every area of health. And we what, know... What barrier does overwork hit? Like how many hours is overworking? Yeah, that's interesting. So there's different definitions. Some studies have had it at 11 hours a day. Other people have had it at 48 hours a week. Some people mm. have had it at 40 hours a week. So, yeah. It, and in a way... It kind of depends on your personality. And actually, the other thing it depends on is perception. So if you perceive yourself to be frenzied and overworked, you could be working 30 hours a week mm. and you would still be you would still be suffering. Um, That's super interesting. But if I mean, actually, perception is a thread which runs through the whole book. Al- almost everything can be dealt with by changing your perception of a situation so so for example perceived social isolation is thought to be and I don't really love this comparison but it's thought to be as dangerous as smoking 15 cigarettes a day for your long-term health perceived social isolation so if you can if you feel isolated then that's damaging for your health if you can figure out a way of not feeling isolated better still don't be isolated Mm -hmm. but you if you can be incredibly solitary but if you don't feel isolated, if it's a choice, effectively. Yeah. Yes. So all of, basically all of the studies of solitude suggest that it's it's bearable if it's a choice. That's essentially it. it, it constantly, the word mm. choice constantly comes up in the literature around solitude. So it, that's and that's entirely perceived. So if you're working alone and either it hasn't been a choice, you've been made redundant and you've had to start doing something from your spare bedroom and you feel really trapped by that and you feel like mm. it's, you know, then you are more at risk of feeling socially isolated and all of the kind of dangers mental health wise that come with that but if you you know to use myself as an example got offered voluntary redundancy which is what happened and then given a great old wedge of money so it wasn't terrifying you had like three months worth of rent in the bank and you went off and did your thing in the same spare room then you feel like you've been given this incredible opportunity and it's and and the fact that you might not see anybody five days a week doesn't really register for a while after a while it does <laughs> it did for me yeah. but um but yeah so it's that's it's all about perception really it's so interesting isn't yeah. it and if we can flip how we feel about those things then we can potentially change our lives yeah totally because i i heard something on depression recently that was saying if a subject is is very depressed and then suffers amnesia all of the symptoms of depression disappear mm. so that would suggest that you are creating the depression in what you think about because the thoughts will then will then create because as soon as you forget those thoughts you no longer suffer depression wow that's massive isn't it but that also we should be careful not to put responsibility onto people who are depressed because i think it's you know there are clinical aspects to it yeah, so 100%. one of the things yeah. that i've said in the book is like every, over and over again it's like if you're if if you're what you're feeling goes beyond straight up misery and just kind of general overwork and and then please get help like yeah. you know this is not this is not my area of expertise yeah. like, i'm trying to help people who might be vulnerable to it not get that far yeah. down the road yeah. so it's like um, stop it before it happens yeah, yeah 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 i mean and that's kind of what i mean by like building structures you know doing whatever it takes to kind of create a system because essentially for all that there are massive problems with working in big institutions and organizations and you know how how, like we were saying earlier you're not designed to sit in an office chair and all that kind of stuff they do come with huge advantages like a good organization will look after you to a greater or lesser extent and when you walk away from that or you've never had it in the first place 
you lose a huge amount yeah. in terms of just general pastoral care. Yeah, because I suppose, yeah, so much of that will be people supporting you don't even realise it's happening. Yeah. And as soon as you go away, you don't realise that all of these things that were supporting you, holding you up, just aren't there anymore yeah. and you're out on your own. Yeah. I mean, so, we always say to people, if you're happy and fulfilled in, in and you're working a nine-to-five... Keep doing that. Brilliant. Yeah. yeah. Great. Yeah. Yeah, 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 totally. There's no requirement to you know, throw it all up in the air and work yeah. in a different way if it works for you. Yeah, I almost feel like it's trendy at the moment to go freelance or start being an entrepreneur or something. That's interesting. Yeah, I wonder if it is. Because there's so much like hype around it. And pe- like you meet people who work in jobs and they quite enjoy them. But like, oh, what I really want to do is start a business and have like loads of employees and do this. I'm like, mm. Do you really want yeah. that? Or if, do you... And the pressure of having a side hustle as well. Yeah, and like everyone feels like they need something extra. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A bunting business on the side yeah. or like a cake thing or something. Yeah, just yeah. something. Like yeah. a little Etsy store like, or just something to fill your free time that you're supposed to be relaxing with something else. But like if you're happy in that first thing, you can just keep doing yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, one yeah. thing we talk about a lot is that it's going to be really, really hard. That's one thing that we always talk about is like it's going to be hard and it's going to take a shit ton of work. Mm. Because there's all of these books like Four Hour Work Week and stuff like that, which I mean, there's some good advice in there yeah, yeah. and like and like outsourcing but, to a virtual assistant and that. Yeah, sort of stuff. that's great advice, and I do, I totally am in that. I think you really do have to like spend some money to make some money. But that book, that title is really funny to just interject. I don't know if you've heard him say this as well, Tim Ferriss, who wrote the book, but he basically. That, that title, he workshopped that title with his publishers and it came back from the focus groups as like with like 15 other options as the best one. Yeah. So he chose that one and he regrets it. He said yeah. he really doesn't feel like the title is rings true but for the But it sells book. a shit ton of books. But it does, it sells yeah. loads of books. But, um, but that's one thing we've always said is we're not going to promise people the, the one hour hack that is right. gonna that's gonna um it's so, in the intro to the book as well like I say exactly the same thing I'm not here to make you a million quid I'm not yeah. here to say that you can work on a beach in Bali you know I'm not about any of that I won't even tell you how to do your tax return I'm not <laughs> interestingly on the beach in Bali thing because everyone has this idea of like that's the goal so my friend quiz job kind of retrained in something else went to live in Bali for like six months and he was like, most people who work in Bali hate their jobs. They absolutely hate it. Because he worked in loads of co-working spaces. And he was like, they've gone there for this dream idyllic thing, but they're all working on like e-com and these digital th- platforms that they hate doing. Yeah. But they're actually sustaining their life there. Yeah. And I was like, fuck, that's really fascinating to know that someone who's been there, worked in lots of different co-working space, spaces, knows that most people there actually don't enjoy their jobs. Which is like for people who've got this idea of working in Bali is the absolute dream. Yeah. It's like, it's not the sustainable thing to do. It's like you need to build yourself up doing something that you love. And then if you can move that to Bali, then maybe that's something great. But the idea of just going to Bali and finding something that you can do to sustain that life isn't going to make you happy. So I interviewed Robert Kropp recently. Have you come across him? He's um, got a site called Cowork22. He basically left his job he had a kind of crisis point in his life you know relationships breaking down and things and he left his job and started to travel first of all traveled around the US trying out different co-working spaces and now and then traveled the world and now is sort of doing six month stints in different cities so he's currently in Barcelona Mm -hmm. and he's fascinating to talk to about co-working spaces in general so I I was interviewing him for the book but he was saying the thing about Bali (laughs) is it's like Shoreditch 
everybody's the same. Yeah. Every you know, you think you're going to live in Bali like Bali was 30 years ago, but actually Bali right now yeah. is is shortage. It's yes. full of people doing yeah. web design and you know, it's not a kind of exotic and unusual place to live. Like it looks different to here, Shoreditch, where we are, but it doesn't feel different because mm. everybody is the same. Um, and I thought that sounded unappealing as well because surely the whole point of moving halfway around the world would be to do, you know, have life be a bit different. Because, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Bali is the same. Like, we did six months of travelling and then ended in Bali. Oh, really? I've never like, been, so... Oh, so it's, it's lovely, but it was like... You get there and it's like, we wanted to end there on purpose because we knew that would be like the gateway to coming back to real life. Right. Because it's like you get there and you've got like amazing coffee again. You've got brunch on tap. It's just like just going back. Yeah, it's like being in Shoreditch or East London, but just in a tropical environment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and also the problem with Bali is all the sea is really wavy. So if you love surfing, it's great. But you can't swim. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> You can go off to like little islands that are like further out that have calmer waters, but actually in Bali, it's really hard to go swimming. So it's essentially LA. Yeah. Isn't it? Like It's very similar to that, yeah, that vibe. Um, but yeah, so what I was thinking of earlier was, although we tell everyone to work really hard, I think, and what you were touching on earlier is, if that makes you miserable, then yeah. then stop. Yeah. And yeah. it's it's and I suppose when you are working solo and you don't have the reassurance of someone to go, oh, I know you're on the right track or you're doing a good mm. job or or and I suppose that's essentially why because because the reason we made this podcast is because it didn't exist and we thought there's just a massive gap there to, to help people that are looking for this sort of stuff and for you I'm guessing you wrote the book because I wrote the book because I hit a massive wall about it's about six or seven years ago now I was you know ostensibly successful and success is not a word I particularly like these days because I don't think it's very helpful but so when you um, say success is that in terms of society yeah 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 if you looked at my social media you would be like oh my god she's doing so well you know I was I was so I'm 38 now so I would have been about 31 when this happened and I had published three books by that point I think I'd been freelance for four or five years and I had previously worked on a national newspaper. I had a regular gig on TV. I was on TV every Sunday morning on Channel 4, um, only for a few minutes, but it was weekly. Mm -hmm. I was doing, you know, private events, speaking engagements that were really well paid. And I was, yeah, I was making loads of money, frankly, making twice as much money, literally, as I do now. And probably from a financial point of view, an awful lot more secure than most freelance writers. It was a brief window. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I was absolutely miserable, absolutely miserable. I mean, there were, two re there were two reasons for that. One was that we were in the middle of going through IVF, me and my husband, so which I've uh, written about. If anyone else is going through it, it's in The Guardian, on The Guardian website. So that, that was part of it. But a really massive part was that I was working seven days a week. Because the TV show was live, I had yeah. to be collected at 5am sometimes on a Sunday morning. I, I never went out on a Saturday, never drank anything on a Saturday because I was terrified of cocking up the Sunday. I sort of theoretically was meant to take Mondays off to make up for it and never did because obviously none of my clients did. Yeah. I was simultaneously editing two magazines for the Soho House Group. I had a column in the Evening Standard. For a while, I also had a weekly column in The Guardian. You know, all great, amazing stuff that I would never have said no to, but I was completely overwhelmed. And I did what I usually do, which is to go looking for a book 
to help me to figure it out. You know, I'd read a lot of Cal Newport on deep work yeah, and yeah. Sean Acor on the happiness advantage and, you know, the, the happiness project, Gretchen Rubin stuff. You know, I had all that stuff, but nothing that was speaking through this solo lens. Like nobody else was talking about what. Yeah. But how do you deal with just being on your own? Yeah. Like all the time and having all this stuff and, and nobody to bounce it off. And like, I remember, I mean, my agent was, was very supportive, but I remember like crying on the phone to him saying, I just don't know what to do. I'm so overwhelmed. And, you know, I think from his point of view, he was a bit like, okay, this is kind of what we were gunning for. Yeah. <laughs> What's going on? And nobody, there was nobody else I could talk to particularly. I didn't really realise that actually there were lots of online groups that I could have joined. And I am now part of lots of Facebook um, network groups for freelance journalists and freelance women and things like that and that that's incredibly helpful but I, I wasn't part of anything like that then so apart from my husband who had his own you know massive stuff to deal with because he was a freelance photographer still is a freelance photographer and you know had his own like enormous deadlines to get through and big huge clients to work for you know so we were just like we didn't really have any capacity to support each other. And then you stop seeing your friends because you're knackered or you're always at work and you stop talking to your family and you just become incredibly, you start just getting narrow and narrow and narrow. Um, I now know that's called tunneling. And okay. uh, yeah, I was just absolutely miserable. And just didn't, there just didn't seem to be any resources out there that would that would help with this and I remember uh, an editor looking at some pictures of me on social media and being like god I'm so you know you just seem to be having such a happy life and I was like yeah I don't put up pictures of myself weeping into mm. a keyboard at midnight like doing rewrites or as memorably sitting in a tent on a campsite in the rain doing rewrites on my knees for the guardian um and crying and being like I just want to have a holiday nobody will let me have a holiday like you know and feeling feeling very much like everything was piling up on top of me really not taking any responsibility for the situation that you know really never controlling the deadlines or asking for more time at the beginning of a project or or anything like that just frantically saying yes to absolutely everything that came mm. along this really strong sense that it was all about to crumble it would all mm. fall down if I didn't just keep on hamster wheeling it along and um yeah, so I needed a way to get out of that. And and ultimately, this book is that in the end. What was the moment where you thought something needs to change? Uh, do you know what? I was kind of lucky in a way. I mean, there was a moment when I was pregnant with my first child who I obviously had by IVF. Yeah. And there was a moment when my midwife was like, you are not eating enough. You, I'd like, <laughs> this is an overshare, but there we go. Um, you can get something called ketones in your urine when you're pregnant, yep. which basically means you're not eating enough. Mm -hmm. And I, and I repeatedly had that. And she like bollocked me. She was, you know, she was like, what have you eaten today? And I was like, mm, a flapjack breakfast. It was like 3 p.m. or something. Yeah, yeah. But because I knew I was going on maternity leave, I was doing absolutely everything. And I remember, in fact, the Christmas. So my daughter was born on the 2nd of December. And I pre-recorded some shows or no, it was weekly shows. They had a few weeks of doing Sunday brunch. They were calling it daily brunch. Mm -hmm. And I remember being like really heavily pregnant and doing three or four of these shows. And then like being feeling so rubbish and nearly throwing up in the back of a taxi because the smell of the air freshener was so strong. Yeah. And I remember at that point just thinking, you've gone mad. And were you... <laughs> like, what are you doing? So this is not a, a like 
a body image or, or like an eating disorder type of thing. This was, you were so busy that you weren't finding enough time in the day to eat. Yeah. I mean, I love eating. Like eating is not, not normally a problem for me. I, I write about food most of the time. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm hungry most of the time. No, this was just because I was, you know, I'd get up really early. I'd write like a column for the evening standard. I'd filed that. I'd send that off. Then I would, you know, have, I don't know, an event or something to do. And so I would be in a taxi and more often than not, I would be doing ridiculous things like I would be writing my presentation in the taxi on the way, which doesn't make for a good presentation ever. And so and then, you know, finish that, feel rubbish about it because I hadn't prepared well, you know, feel like that client was never going to call me again. Quite often, actually, that was the case. Like I didn't do good jobs quite often. And then I would go home and have to work on a script for Sunday brunch. You know, they'd send a bunch of questions so that, that could be put in the script. And I'd finish work at seven, eight you know, o'clock at night and then I'd get up again and do it all the next morning. And from the outside, it looked really great. It looked amazing. Like, oh my God, she's pregnant. She's doing this, she's doing mm. that, blah, blah, blah. And inside I was just spiraling. And actually, I also think that that didn't help when it came to stopping work. I didn't really cope with that very well. Like I didn't have postnatal depression, but I was not a particularly cheerful person for the first three or four months of having a kid because... So I suppose baby makes you you have to stop you have to stop and I think that was lucky because I'm not sure if we had if IVF had not worked for us I'm not sure that I would have stopped and I'm not sure I would still be, be on the wheel yeah I think I probably would yeah or Yikes. or in daily therapy yeah. <laughs> or something so I think I was really lucky I think that something stepped in to stop me rather than me actually saying you've got to stop but I was working on the proposal for this book at that point so 2014 is when my daughter was born and the last time I opened it was the summer of that year so I I had already written you know a few thousand words of it at that point so I did I did know that mm. you know we all needed a bit of help to get through this solo working thing I think people when they are in that situation they do know but if they don't have the luxury of a baby on the way to, <laughs> yeah. to force yeah. to force that stop would you would you say like the best thing to do is like to do a dramatic forced stop or would you say it's incremental step by step? It, I think it has to probably be incremental. Right. I think that it's about, in a way, it's a bit like the Rachel Hollis list that I was talking about earlier. You work on one thing at a time and other things will probably fall into place. Mm -hmm. But I think the, the thing which challenges all of us is the New Year's resolution issue. If you say, right, this year is the year I'm going to have a bikini body, which FYI, is a horrible thing. And my, <laughs> I have a bikini body. It's a body that can wear a bikini. That's yes. it. The end. Um, <laughs> and but you know, you think that you think I'm gonna like I'm gonna get a partner. I'm going to change my job. I'm gonna cut my hair short. I'm gonna read more novels. You know, whatever it is, we write this massive list of things, and three days later, we're defeated by that because it's yeah. just far too much. Whereas if you choose one thing and you break that one thing down into a set of manageable smaller tasks or smaller challenges, then you're more likely to achieve it. But like, I, that's, I guess that's a bit why I would say it's slightly dangerous to be like, I'm going to quit my job and start something completely new. You know, it's probably better to say, can I go down to four days a week and do my other thing on the fifth day? And, you know, or do you need to do an evening class to learn how to do that thing? Or, you know, whatever it is, you know, make it an incremental change. Because the abrupt change that I went through in having a baby wasn't a particularly healthy way of changing I don't think mm. um it probably took another year or so to kind of get my head straight ish <laughs> I would say possibly longer and some counseling I had some counseling too so 
what are the because I know you've looked you're looking into this for the book what are the sort of issues around money that solo workers have because I would imagine all of this pressure and stress a lot of it for a lot of people is going to be that kind of scarcity mindset of I have to say yes to every single opportunity because otherwise I'm going to go out of business yeah I haven't written the money chapter yet (laughs) but um, there is some really interesting research about how if you put a monetary value on a unit of time it makes that thing that bit of time seem scarcer Mm -hmm. which is weird right so the more you and the more money you put on that unit of time the more scarce it seems so it's really interesting studies that they've done where they pay different amounts of money to different people and then track how they feel about it in a in a psychological study setting so not over a course of a year or anything and the the implications are that yeah if the more you think about money and the more in fact more money you try and get the more it feels as though your time is scarce wow. yeah so that has really big implications for how solo workers feel about time plus money time plus money equals panic yeah because <laughs> it's like yeah, if you put a hundred pounds an hour for example on your yeah. time and then you're making lunch then that's like, hmm, that's costing me 50 pounds. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. So it makes you feel as though you should be working absolutely yeah. every minute of every day. But it also makes the work that you do feel more stressful, I think. Mm-hmm. This is a slightly different point. But so I am on occasion paid a lot of money to go and talk to people. You guys are not paying me. I'm probably doing a much better job of it today because this is, I mean, obviously there's a, there's a uh, what's it, there's an exchange here. Like I'm hoping that this will be good publicity for my book and it's a really nice opportunity to think about this stuff, but there's no actual financial exchange. Whereas on the occasions where I've been paid like sometimes thousands of pounds to go and talk, I'm so terrified by that because of the money. Yes. Mm-hmm. Because I'm like, I have to give people value. Yeah. And then I'm paralyzed and then I just make a mess of it and do it really badly because I'm so scared. And I've actually decided that I'm pretty much going to just stop doing those because it's just, you know, unless it's something I really love talking about or something I really, really feel passionately about, I just uh, get completely paralysed by the fear. And I think that really is down to the money. And I've talked to other people about this. It's, It's a common experience. So if you then apply that to your working day, so you're a consultant, you know, you get paid a couple of grand for a week's worth of work or something. There's a there's a sense in which if you're not really careful or you're not really aware, you can just end up feeling really tense about that solely because you're being paid a lot of money or what you perceive to be a lot of money for something. That's fascinating. And again, it comes down to our weird brains, doesn't it? Because mm-hmm. Adam's making me read books on uh, investing at the moment because he says I'm not being sensible with my money and that I should should be more grown up. And because uh, I just don't That's care. one of my things on my I list, don't care. by the way. I am organised with money. And right. now I am. Yeah. It's Maybe weird. I should yeah. write that down then because I'm not because I just don't care. It's like as long as I've got enough to survive then but anyway Adam's much more sensible than I am but one of the books I was reading recently was talking about the amygdala is the part of the brain Mm. where if you lose money then that's the part of your brain that's activated and it has the same like panic stricken reaction as if you were being chased like the fight or flight thing of of it's but basically you're under attack yeah so I would imagine that this research would probably link into that and I'd really like to talk to the professor that did the research because i wonder if he would he would make a parallel with that I think there's also an interesting thing about the language we use about business that kind of forces that feeling into the front as well we are you know it's 
like a dog eat dog world. Yeah. Mm. We've got to be in it to win it. You smashing know, it, crushing smashing it. Smashing it, crushing yeah. it, like competition, you know, collateral damage, all these sort of warlike, really yeah. aggressive bits of language that we use yeah. about work and about business. Because all of those are like knocking other people down. Yeah. It's like you have to clamber over someone else to get to where you need yeah, to go Yeah, that it's to. a zero-sum game. Yeah. When Whereas it's so not. not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's really not, you know. But it's so easy. And I think, I mean, again, this is like another whole, another whole topic, but social media contributes to that because I've definitely, you know, there's a couple of other female food writers food and drink writers who are like about my age and about my stage and we work in the same sort of publications and even though I'm <laughs> I was gonna say even though I'm enlightened I'm not enlightened but like even though I know about this stuff and I know how it affects the brain and I've read all the papers and you know I've got 700 journals bookmarked with stuff about this on my computer I still fall into it I look at it when they they're like I've got a new book out I'm like damn it yeah I haven't that should be me you know, it shouldn't. It's. Not, I mean, it totally shouldn't. Yeah. But for a, for a second or two, I am knocked down by their elevation. So that's just your brain kicking in before your consciousness. My lizard brain. Yeah, before your, <laughs> yeah. like, human brain's yeah. there to stop it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think that's, again, it's a really challenging thing when you're solo because it's there's nobody else to whom you can turn and be like, oh, Rosie's done another book. And, you know, you you don't have anyone who can be yeah. like... That's okay, you're yeah. working on your book Yeah, now. exactly, yeah. exactly, yeah. yeah. Or you wouldn't want to write that book. Yeah. And also, I mean, the, the whole other thing about social media, as I was saying about my own social media appearance a few years ago, it, it just doesn't tell the full story. You know, people, people were saying I looked happy when I was in the middle of the most harrowing IVF situation mm. and, you know, obviously I wasn't posting about that. And now I try and be a little bit more honest, a little bit more... You know, this is hard. This is challenging. Um, to get here required this, but it's still quite hard because you have to be very exposed if you do that. What's the best piece of advice anyone's ever given you? Ooh, um, best piece of advice. Oh, yeah, actually. So I interviewed Nicholas Hooper recently, who is a composer, film score composer, and uh, among other things. And he did three of the Harry Potter films um, right. after John Williams. He, yeah. did, he did some. And he's had periods of sort of, creative block and quite tough times in his life even though you know like I was just saying he from the outside would look like incredibly like mm. an incredibly successful man yeah. um, and he said and this is not particularly his invention but I loved the way that he said it he just said when he finds he's stuck he he just has this phrase in his head is just throw the paint at the wall just keep throwing the paint at the wall and I liked it so much that I actually wrote it down and stuck it on my computer because I was at a point in the book where I was so uncertain of what I was doing and how to do it and everything that I was sort of paralyzed by the prospect of doing the work yeah so I, I have it in my head a lot that phrase like whenever I get stuck I just think just throw it at the wall just throw it because you can edit something once it's been done yeah. but you can't edit nothing yeah, sure. <laughs> you know you can rewrite and rewrite and rewrite until it's good but that is impossible if you haven't written anything at all um and it, it chimed with something I heard on a Radio 4 documentary about, about creativity, which was essentially the same thing, a, a musician saying, just do the work. Essentially, just do the work. That's the one thing that will get the work done, is doing the work. <laughs> so that's probably the best advice. It's not, like, it's not super profound and it's actually incredibly obvious, but ultimately the thing, the thing with all of this stuff is that being afraid of stuff is more exhausting than doing the stuff. 
interviewed somebody, Nat Rich, uh, who's brilliant personal responsibility coach. And we had this extraordinary thing where I thought I was being, I was interviewing her. And actually in the end, she gave me like a coaching session and I finished it in tears because it was so kind of extraordinary. But she essentially taught me that having stuff on your, on your to-do list, we were talking specifically about how to write a to-do list that would actually work. Having stuff on your to-do list that makes you feel guilty or bad is emotionally exhausting. If you do them, which is hard, but if you do the things which are making you feel awful, then they're not on your list anymore. They're gone. And the weight is just gone. And it was just this extraordinary... I mean, again, it's so obvious. Some of this stuff is so obvious. It's just common sense things that we've totally forgotten. And so after the phone call, I wiped the tears away and took a deep breath and did all the things that were making me feel guilty on the list. And my God, it was amazing. And now they're not there. <laughs> things that have been there for months. Yeah. Months and months. You know, and they're just Get gone. Get your work. Just, just do the work <laughs> <laughs> amazing thank you so much that's okay where can people find you online uh oh you can look at my awful website rebeccaseal.co.uk and there will be a website to accompany the book which is howtoworkalone.com but well, there ain't I nothing do, there yet this this is so fascinating and i know like i know the book's not not out yet it's not been finished it's yet. not finished it's um, half but, but i mean we still we still wanted to talk to you because we think it's just such an interesting concept but what i'd like to do is read the book and then have you on after we've that read would be it great um so we can yeah we can dive more into this because yeah we probably only scratched the surface yeah it's super interesting <laughs> the surface of my blah 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 <laughs> <laughs> thank, you so thank you so much boom thanks so much for listening get any value from these episodes it would mean the world to us if you could share the podcast with someone who needs it you can always reach out to us on instagram at rebels create or head over to creativerebels.co and remember always be creating see ya